Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we are resuming with the book, The Problems of Theism and the Love of God, and we're continuing on to chapter 8. We've spoken at length already about the differences between Mormon views of grace and works and those of evangelical and some other views as well. And then we went over the compassion theory of atonement and different theories of atonement. And obviously they're related because they all come back to soteriology, again, which is just the theory of salvation or how Christ provides us with that salvation. So now we're going to kind of shift gears and focus on grace and works, but in kind of a new light. In the last little while, I don't know, it's it's been a couple decades now, but the view on the epistles of Paul have come into what's called a new perspective on Paul. In other words, a different reading of Paul. We're going to kind of get into that tonight and what that means for Mormons. And uh, spoiler alert, it's good. All right, so the title of chapter 8 is Honor, Shame, and the Righteousness of God. So I'll start out, as usual, with kind of your first paragraph in that chapter. You say, I want to focus on Paul's thoughts for two reasons. Biblical documents are foundational for the LDS canon and accepted as authoritative. Paul's views are therefore also foundational for LDS. However, I also want to focus on Paul's thought because it is insightful and profound regarding the loving relationship offered by God to us. His polemic of justification by grace is a statement of God's willingness to accept us just as we are without any judgment at the very moment that we turn to him in faith. In other words, Paul's doctrine of justification by grace is the simple statement that God loves us without imposing judgment on us in the sense that God accepts us into relationship with him as a matter of his grace. And, you know, in the overall context of things, you can see again how this relates back to what was developed in the compassion theory of atonement. Anyway, you go on to say, the critical notion of justification by faith is the movement of entering into relationship, where God's offer of relationship and willingness to accept us as we are is universal as a matter of grace. And so, before we talk more about Paul, I guess, what else would you like to do to introduce this in your thought? The focus will be placing Paul back into the context of the time, place, and culture in which he wrote so that we can get a better optic of what Paul is addressing, what his concerns are, and why he has the concerns. So we want to be faithful to Paul, and we'll talk about Paul and his genuine letters, Paul and Pauline letters, and those where there is some scholarly dispute as to whether they're from him or, or maybe from someone else, like later Christian Pauline disciples. So it's a somewhat complicated matter in terms of the texts that are involved. But because of the new perspective on Paul and the immense amount of scholarly work on Paul during the latter part of the 1980s through about 2015, we have a, a much better understanding of Paul and his thought, I believe, than the Reformers did when they began to address Paul's thought as foundational for Protestantism. Okay, and you know we're going to get into this more in a minute, but give us kind of an overview on this phrase. I, I'll just read it from the book, you say. 
the new perspective on Paul constitutes a crucial corrective to Protestant and Catholic views. So I guess put us in context, what what were the old Protestant or Catholic view on their, or how they read Paul? For Luther, the problem that Paul is addressing is primarily how a sinner stands before the Holy God. And the answer is that God imputes to us Christ's righteousness, disregards anything that would be unholy about us in order to be in his presence, and basically does so as a matter of grace. It's a sheer gift. And so the Protestants had a view which was developed as a forensic view. That means it's based upon the type of judgments that are made in a court of law. For the Protestants, there is no real change in the person who is regarded as being righteous as a matter of justification. And there's another important matter that we need to pay attention to, and that's the difference in the words as they're used in, in various languages. So, dikiosinai in Greek is essentially the word for justification. And it means that we're declared righteous, but because in the English language, righteousness has overtones of our moral qualities, it is misleading with respect to what the Protestants wanted to say about Paul. It has nothing to do with her personal righteousness. And so when God regards us as righteous, even though we're not, it appears that God is simply engaging in a fiction. That's not really what they're saying, but because of the terminology, it appears to be what they're saying. So there is this moment of justification in which we're accepted into Christianity. Justification is a moment. It happens all at once for Protestants, and it's a matter of a sheer gift. And then we enter into a process of sanctification through a synergy or through the dual workings of both works, faith and grace. For Catholics, what God does to us in justifying us is infuses us with his righteousness. And so we're not righteous in virtue of our own righteousness, but God actually infuses into us this property of righteousness so that we're not merely regarded as righteous. We are, in fact, righteous because God has given us righteousness that's not ours. Same problems that exist with original sin and Augustine's thought arise, of course, on this view. How could I be righteous for something that isn't about me and that I didn't do? Protestant views of justification and, and salvation by grace are external, that is, they're outside of the person who is declared justified. For Catholics, justification is internal. It's an actual change in the person. And so in the Protestant Reformation, this was a part of the focus of what Luther was attempting to address and, and why to him the Catholic view wasn't acceptable. Though, by and large, I would say it was more of the larger Catholic culture and the corruption that, without question, I mean, I don't know anybody who would disagree that there was a good deal of corruption in the papacy and in the Catholic Church at the time that Luther was viewing it, including the notion that one could pay for future sins through indulgences. It's not merely a corruption, it's really a morally detestable way of, of looking at the relationship that we have with God. But that's kind of what was happening in the Catholic-Protestant debate and, and there were a number of luminaries, of course, who debated each other across those divides. But our attempt will be to recapture Paul within the context of his original Jewish culture from which he is viewing the new Christian message. Because for Paul and for almost all of the earliest Christians, they were really just Jews trying to figure out what it meant to be a Christian while they were still Jews. For Paul, it meant that a good deal of the law no longer applied 
to the Gentiles who were being asked to join Christianity. And so the kinds of things that were demanded by the law were simply no longer effective. But we'll talk about that as we get more into the new perspective on Paul and discussing these various issues. And you add, you say, in addition, recent studies in the anthropology of the ancient Mediterranean cultures posit that Paul's thought assumed a culture of honor and shame, valuations within which he functioned. We'll get into that a lot in this next section, uh, but I also wanted to add, you say, this new view aligns with the views of John, and it also brings Paul's thought in alignment with LDS views of grace and exaltation. And, of course, since this is exploring Mormon thought, that's why we're getting into this, because it is more in alignment with the actual LDS views, which is pretty cool. All right, so let's move right into it. So, as you said, putting Paul in his cultural context, they had a culture of what is called honor and shame. This next section is called Moral Obligation and Honor and Shame, in which we're going to talk about that. So, in this system of honor and shame, honor is a sacred value that can be ascribed only to persons, whereas shame is a personal dishonor that profanes what is sacred in a person. And then, let me just give these overviews and then we can get into how it applies in his culture. So you bring up different kinds of guilt. You say, subjective guilt arises when I feel that I have done something wrong, whether what I have done is, in fact, wrong or not. And then there's objective guilt, which arises when I have done something wrong, whether I feel that I have done so or not. And so if you can see the difference there, you know, one is from within you, and you say, I feel that I've done wrong, whether... Society views that you have done wrong or it's actually wrong, who knows? Whereas objective guilt is like, no, that's definitely wrong. Society views it as wrong. And just because you feel good about it doesn't really make you not guilty in that sense. Right, and then you switch over to honor. You say that arises in different ways, such as one, virtue and excellence demonstrated by honorable deeds. So that's like you talked about, we're getting into the semantics where you brought up righteousness. So this righteousness would be someone that actually did righteous acts themselves, and they're honored because of that. And then you say, two, honor of precedence, which arises from status and power to enforce compliance with claimed honor, which is a little confusing to say, but you clarify here, you say, the latter honor of precedence arises from either being born into a family of certain class and recognized status, such as like a noble birth or through delegation from a person who has the power to enforce acknowledgement of honor, such as a king, or because the assertion of the benefactor to grant such honor is unimpeachable because of that person's honor and reputation. Let me just add one more thing, and then we'll talk a lot about it. So we are going to focus more on this second idea of honor, and then in a second we'll, you'll see how that relates to our relationship with God. So with these ideas of honor and shame in place... And again, this isn't, we're not saying that this is our current culture. We're just saying this is what the culture of Paul viewed it as. Uh, you bring up a term called a client-patron relationship. So can you kind of explain what a client-patron relationship is and then give us like an example that we would understand that's not God and then and then tell us how it relates to God, if you would. Sure. So what we have is the type of relationship where a person has found great favor in the eyes of a very powerful and influential person. So let's take a concrete example in Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur, because he's so good at chariot races, finds great 
honor in the eyes of the not only the noble class, but also the king who recognizes him because of the th- kind of things he's done. The king is the patron. He then becomes the client of the king who makes sure that he gets admitted into noble and civil circles. Because he had previously been a slave, he's now accepted into noble culture as an equal. And so there's that kind of nobility that arises from a patron taking on a client and basically because of the honor that it brings to both of them. The king is honored because he's got a a wonderful person that everybody recognizes as just being an, an amazing individual. It would be like the kind of relationship that we would see in Europe in the courts when a king recognizes a person who's been very successful or they've done amazing things that brought honor to the king, and so the king reciprocates the honor. One other example I thought of that, I guess, for LDS people and any readers of the Bible, when Joseph, from the story where he was sold into Egypt and he rose to be Pharaoh's number two, I guess you could say that's the same kind of thing because he didn't have any noble blood, he came from nothing, but because of his honorable character and his knowledge of irrigation and storing, I guess, he rose up to be second only to Pharaoh himself. And so, An excellent example. It's exactly what's happening. It's an example of the honor and shame relationship. There's something else that happens, and that is that, that Joseph is recognized essentially as the king's son. This is a very important part of what happens in the honor and shame cultures. The greatest recognition that can be bestowed is when the nobleman or the person who is the patron really wants to honor it to such a degree that he wants him to be a part of his own family. And so there are numerous kinds of examples where grown men are adopted by men as their own sons. Sometimes the men are older than the people, than the man adopting him. <laughs> okay. So what we have is this notion of, I want you to be part of my family because you bring honor to, to me, and being a part of my family is the greatest honor I can give to you. Also, there is a very common type of honor relationship that still exists in our culture, I believe, and it is the, the relationship when, for instance, a very bright student is at college, and a professor will take that student under his or her wing and basically write letters of introduction or recommendation for them make sure that his uh, associates know about the great things that the student is doing. And the, the teacher is, of course, honored by the fact that he has a great student because he has been able to pass on what he loves and because he demonstrates that the teacher is, in fact, a very effective and honorable teacher. And the student, of course, is the recipient of the beneficence of the benefactor in that relationship. And often these types of relationships are relationships of very deep affection, where people really love each other because of the what has been imparted from one to the other. And it goes both ways, actually. The benefactor is also um, blessed and recognized and honored as a result of the relationship. And so these are often relationships of very deep love, where as a result of the love, The benefactor wants to make sure that the student or the client receives due recognition. And so these types of relationships readily lent themselves to the relationship between God and his children who were adopted as his children, and God as a king who wants to bestow his blessings and glory upon those who will recognize him through a covenant relationship. 
it was a very natural fit in Paul's culture to express the relationship between Christians and God through the honor and shame system. So this is something at least the readers of the time, since these are from epistles, would have recognized and they would get the allegory, whereas it does get a little lost on us today, especially in America or you know anywhere where there's not a monarchy. One point of clarification, if you would, for me. So you've pointed out a difference between honors, um, which comes, like I pointed out before, into play when we talk about righteousness and some semantic differences there. So the way you just described the second version of honor still sounds like the person that is being, or they get their honor from the benefactor or from the patron and the client-patron relationship, they still have to actually be an honorable person, right? Like there's no, I don't know, like what? what's the major difference between number one, where it's just like you are honorable because you did good things, whereas number two, I thought there was a bigger distinction when I was like, yeah, you still have to do all those good deeds and actually be honorable, but then something else is gained? Well, in the second, remember, you can simply have this. Throughout Europe, this continued. If you were born into a certain kind of a family, then you were recognized as nobility regardless of what you did. And so you had these kind of passport into noble culture. You had all kinds of benefits that those who weren't nobility had. And it had nothing to do with anything you'd done. You simply had it because your father and mother were who they were. The status of noble birth is like what happened with Israel. God recognized people to be his chosen covenant people, not because of what they did. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, they're constantly frustrating God, and they, they don't obey and honor covenant. But God is still faithful to his covenant. And so God honors Israel not because Israel deserves the honor, but because God is honorable, and he's honorable in the sense that he is faithful to the covenant that he has made. Are you referring to his covenant specifically with Abraham, and Abraham was the honorable person, at least in this context? No, it's specifically the, the covenant that was made through Moses with Israel. So the people of Israel are established as God's people through this covenant. The covenant with Abraham, in fact, Paul uses the covenant of Abraham in kind of a different way because it's not based on birth, it's based solely upon his faith. And Paul uses Abraham as kind of a counterfactual to the notion that one is God's people simply because you're in Israel. Paul is explaining it's not merely because you're a part of Israel, it's because of your faith, just the way that Abraham was honored by God in covenant. God honored Abraham, and, and Paul uses Abraham as the primary example. He was honored because of his faith, and God made covenant with Abraham well before Israel became a people. And so this becomes the basis of recognition for Paul. Paul's primary issue is, and let's just focus exactly on what Paul was worried about, Paul's question was this, Israel has been recognized by covenant as God's people, but given the Christian message, Israel is no longer his chosen people. The Christians are. And so the issue that arises for Paul within his culture is, well, how can God be honorable and maintain the covenant that he's made if he's no longer recognizing Israel with whom he covenanted to be his people. That was the issue. That's the very central issue that the new perspective on Paul pointed out is the issue that he's addressing. Isn't God dishonorable because he's now abandoning Israel? Another way to put it. And Paul's response to that is no, because now status in the chosen people 
is no longer based upon status as a Jew being born into Israel. It is now based upon one's faith in Christ, who is the mediator of the new covenant. And because Christ is recognized by God as the mediator, God honors those who have faith as clients in the honor and shame system who were brought to them. Often in the honor and shame culture, there was a mediator, and and we can get into this a little bit later, but the important part is that there were go-betweens between very powerful people and people who wanted to have the benefit of being in relationship to these people who had all the money. Because if you're a lower class, how, how do you ever get money? How do you ever get status in society? What you needed was somebody who had access to nobility, whereas the lower class never did. And so if you had somebody who would point out to the noble or to the king what had actually happened, it's like, you know, that great battle we won, it wasn't because of the general, the general ran. It was because of this soldier here. There's an actual case of this in Greek history where essentially the general who was leading the battle ran off, but there was a soldier who stepped up and maintained the line and they won the battle as a result of it. And so the king recognizes that soldier now as the general, okay, because it's pointed out to him by his vizier that this is actually the guy through, through what he did who is the honorable one. And so now you've got a go-between, a mediator, who is pointing out who it is that's worthy of honor. And this is a very common kind of relationship in the patron-client relationship in the honor-shame system. All right. No, that all makes sense. Okay, great. So, and as you have already pointed out, I just will read the point just because I wrote it down. and say, the covenant relationship between Yahweh and Israel is a species of the patron-client relationship in the honor-shame system. And then... One more, you say, according to Paul, God honors our works of righteousness and shames us for the dishonorable works that we do. And before we move on, I just wonder if you could kind of clarify what you mean by that. So, he honors our works of righteousness, but what do you mean he shames us for dishonorable? I guess, go more into the shame aspect. We've talked a lot about the honor, but are you saying the culture that we're talking about is how if you're associated with someone honorable and they adopt you and then you're like two generations later and you're still honored just because of that relationship that was started or the adoption or however you say it. Whereas like in the class system in India, for example, for shame, if you're not born of a certain class, there's only so high you can go. Like it doesn't matter what you do, you'll never get higher than that. The honor-shame system, in fact, can turn into a form of caste system if they're not sufficient mediators and ways of recognizing honor that will bring one to have access to the noble society. But more than that, what we're talking about here is that Paul often talks about how Christians in the eyes of the world are shameful. They're foolish and and stupid, and they're not going to be recognized by the world. But the real honor is the honor that God bestows upon them. He recognizes the Christians for what they actually are. And so he honors the Christians, whereas the world sees them as a shameful thing. And so there's this reversal of honor in Paul's thought. This often happens, by the way. To the insiders in a particular society, they are the honorable ones, and those who refuse to accept them as honorable are, in fact, the disgraceful ones. A good example is in Mormon history and the way that Mormons were in American culture. It was shameful to be a Mormon in the larger Mormon culture. In fact, it was so shameful that Congress passed laws against the Mormon practices and governors thought they were so shameful that they ought to be killed, literally murdered. (laughs) And so it was a very shameful thing in the eyes of those in power and in the world 
to be a Christian and just as it was to be a Mormon in the early United States. But from the perspective of the Mormons, they were the honorable ones. They were being honored by God because they were the beneficiaries of the revelations of the restoration and the restoration of the covenant relationship. And so honor often exists from only a particular perspective. And whereas one can be honorable within a certain culture or group of people, one may be totally dishonorable in the eyes of another group of people. Makes sense. And yeah, it brings more into light the Beatitudes of blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit. So like, you know, society sees them like, uh, you know, they're the weak ones. But Jesus is saying, well, within this culture, you are the honorable ones. That's exactly right. It's the humble and meek who inherit the earth, meaning that they're the ones who rule the earth. It's not the rich and powerful. The rich and powerful are the Pharisees and Sadducees, and we all know what Jesus had to say about them. So from the perspective of Jesus, those who were held in honor in the Jewish culture were, in fact, shameful and disgraceful, whereas those who followed Christ in meekness and loyalty were the honorable ones. Certainly those who were in Jewish culture didn't see it that way. All right, now we're going to move on and have Jacob take the next section, so go ahead. All right. Uh, Now, Paul also introduces his doctrine of justification, or or how he understands justification, and also God's honoring a covenant. And, Dad, you start out with, Paul viewed the Christians as taking the place of Israel as God's covenant people, but still honors his covenant. If you could just explain how exactly God is still honoring a covenant when he's switching. I mean, if if you make a covenant with one type of people, how is it that it switches to a different set of people, yet they're still honoring the covenant. The Jews have breached the covenant, and God has had it with them, is the easy way to put it. The Jews have become dishonorable because they fail to care for the poor. The rich disregard the needs, and they hoard all of the money. And as a result, God no longer regards Israel as the focus of his covenant relationship. And God is not bound by the covenant because Israel has breached the covenant over and over and over again. And they breached the covenant primarily not only in rejecting the poor and the meek, but also by rejecting the Christians. And because they've rejected Christ, they have now become a hiss and a byword. The reason is is that Paul recognizes that God honored Christ in a number of ways, but primarily in his resurrection. The fact that Christ resurrected shows that God recognizes and honors Christ as his son and the mediator now between those who come to God through him. And so if one rejects Christ, one is no longer in the covenant people. And what Paul places that with is being in Christ. The notion that one is in Christ is like the notion that one is in Israel. Whereas one has status in Israel because of birth, one has status in Christ because of faith in Christ and all that faith entails. And so it's the distinction now between who is in the covenant relationship with God is based, just as it was for Abraham, on faithfulness. Let's talk a little bit about the term faith and and what Paul is actually talking about. When he talks about this covenant relationship and the kind of faith at issue, it is covenant faithfulness that he has in mind. So he's taking a parallel here. If one is a Jew, one gets into the covenant by birth. It's a gift. You don't earn it. You don't earn anything by birth. But one remains in the covenant by faithfulness to the terms of the covenant. One could not be faithful to God in the covenant if one breached all the terms of the covenant. If one, for instance, disregarded the admonition to not kill or to abstain from the foods that weren't kosher, 
if one didn't observe the law, then one had breached the covenant. Now, Paul, in fact, says if one keeps the whole law, then one could be still in the covenant. But remember what Paul's argument is. Nobody does that, (laughs) okay? If you kept the whole law, then you would be honorable and you would maintain covenant, but you haven't kept the whole law. But the whole law now is no longer the law of Moses. It's the law of love taught by Jesus. And so one keeps covenant with God now by keeping the law of love through faith in Christ. And therefore, one is found in Christ. And if one is in Christ, then because Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, one is in the covenant people recognized by God. And it's a matter of grace that one is recognized. It's a sheer gift. One is recognized because Christ has done and accomplished what he did through his death and resurrection, and because those who have faith in Christ are then brought by Christ to the Father as a mediator. And so what's happening is a change in the recognition of what brings one to be in covenant relationship with God. And this is an important fact. The Protestants, I mean, they got, I want to say, almost everything wrong with respect to Paul. The notion of being in Christ has nothing to do with the legal fiction of imputing external righteousness where there is none. Nor is it like the Catholics were arguing that there is this kind of transfer, infusion of moral goodness, so that one is actually changed to be good. That's not what happens at all. That's not what Paul is concerned about. Rather, justification is the declaration that God will honor and protect us as his own sons and daughters, because he's now adopting us as the greatest honor that he can give to us because of our faithfulness to Christ and therefore our faithfulness to his covenant. Before Christ, the honor was bestowed on Israel on the basis of national origin and position within Jewish community. After Christ, honor is granted by the Father to those who are faithful to Christ as mediator. All right. So, yeah, just to reiterate, before Christ, the honor was bestowed on Israel on the basis of the national origin and position within the Jewish community. Like you said, it was a gift. They didn't do anything to deserve it. It was just given to them. But after Christ, since they rejected him, they fell out of the covenant, and now the honor is granted by the Father to those who are faithful to Christ as the mediator, or being in Christ, as you say. Yeah, and so this is a very important thing. Now, it's much more profound even than that for Paul and in Johannine thought in particular. So to be in Christ, at justification, when one has faith in Christ, there is a change in the believer, but it's not an infusion of moral righteousness. What happens is that the very life force, the power of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, enters in to now vivify and give life to the new Christian. One is born again in Christ. And so there's a new life that lives in the Christian, a co-shared life in which the Christian's life and Christ's life coexist within the same person. And it manifests itself in the life of an individual when the individual repents and the individual begins to take Christ as master and Lord. And there's a real change because of the choices that are freely made by the individual to accept the covenant relationship and to enter into covenant relationship. The relationship is offered without conditions, and this is the important part. The relationship is being offered through Christ out of God's love. He loves us. We're his sons and daughters. And he wants us to be fully adopted and be recognized and honored through the adoption as one is by a benefactor in the honor and shame culture. 
And so what Paul is now talking about is this very profound change that comes into us because the life that is in Christ is now in us. And we are therefore in Christ because we participate as one in each other. And so it's a very strong recognition of what I call Christification and deification or theosis. For Paul, the very center of justification by grace is the beginning of the process of theosis in which one lives a life in Christ. And this is not done all at once. One enters into this relationship through faith, but the faith must continue. Paul is very clear that if the faith doesn't continue, one can fall from grace. That's Galatians 5 and 6. So there's no, no such thing as once saved, always saved. The kind of thing that as one of the pillars of Protestant thought, particularly Calvinism. The notion is, is that once in the relationship, it depends on one maintaining covenant faithfulness to remain in the relationship. And so there is this mix of grace and unconditional acceptance in love. We can call it unconditional love because that's what grace is. And the kind of life that one who lives in this grace manifests out of sheer gratitude and love for God. Remember what we're doing when we become a Christian. What it means to have faith in Christ is now to enter into life with Christ and recognize Christ as the mediator with God. But not only that, to have this profound relationship now that's been mediated by Christ with God. And so we now begin on a a lifelong process of faithfulness, or we don't. To the extent we're not faithful, we breach covenant, and we're not Christian. To that extent, we fall from this grace, and the only way back into it is through repentance, renew the covenant relationship. It is to heal the covenant relationship that has been breached. Let me give a more concrete example. So the kind of relationship, we have a covenant relationship when we get married, and we enter into relationships, and we're all guys, so we have wives, and we've made them promises, covenant promises. And when we love them and honor them and treat them the way that they deserve to be treated, then we maintain that covenant and we're in the relationship to the extent that we don't, okay? To the extent that we're jerks and and we treat them with less than love, or maybe we're angry at them, or maybe we're petty, or maybe we're self-centered, and we all are, by the way. We breach the covenant that we have with our wives and our relationship with our wife is thereby injured. And it must be healed through repentance, that is, asking forgiveness, making reparation to the extent that one can to heal the relationship, and changing the way that we act so that we can remain in the covenant relationship. So it is the covenant relationship is also a measure of how close we are in terms of our relationship. To be in covenant relationship with God is to be in this close, loving, abiding relationship with God. And we keep the commandments, not because he's commanded us as a general, so that we can get rewards, and we don't earn the relationship. We demonstrate our love through this relationship, and we remain in covenant by being loving, by keeping the command to love. That's really the center of what Paul is saying a Christian is. A Christian is a person who maintains the covenant relationship in this sense that we do with our wives by loving conduct but we do it toward all people. We do it toward our brothers and sisters as part of our family. And so what's essential to the covenant relationship now is maintaining covenant faithfulness through loving kindness, acts, meekness, and so forth. Okay. Um, Now let's talk about another term here because, you know, 
Paul's use of justification, he's talking about anything that we've done to justify ourselves. Let's talk about Paul's view on righteousness as well, because it's not so much we're righteous and that I'm so awesome because I make all the right choices. What, what is the way that Paul uses righteousness? I mean, we talk about righteousness, as I said, there's this disconnect in, in the notion of dikiosine, which is justification, and what it really means in his culture and the way that we view righteousness in our culture, because righteousness is a moral quality of a person based upon what a person does. Rather, it's not our righteousness that's at issue, it's God's righteousness, okay? And God recognizes us as righteous, not because we've earned it, but because he's righteous. A better way to translate that, in my view, would be to say, God honors us because he's honorable, or God loves us because he is loving. I haven't earned his love. In fact, if you stop and think about it, let's translate this into the way I think would be best to translate it into our culture and language. No one earns love, okay? You don't earn love by adding up the acts that you do. Love is a gift. And God loves us not because we've earned his love, but because he is loving. He loves everyone with a universal love. This universal love that is committed to the best interests of every person and works and working with them to accomplish their best interest. So God loves everybody in this sense, and so he accepts us into relationship and loves us, not because we earn the love. That In fact, if somebody tried to earn God's love, they would just show they don't understand either love or God, okay? Nor do they understand grace at all. But if a person recognizes that one is simply loved because of the kind of being that God is, God is loving, then we recognize that in this sense we're justified. What does it mean to be justified? To be justified means that God views me as being in right relationship with him. In other words, God isn't going to hold against me the fact that I constantly do bad things. He's going to constantly love me and urge me to come back to covenant faithfulness with him. Now, I made this distinction earlier in volume two, and it's an important distinction. This isn't the kind of, of close and abiding relationship of fellowship the minute that we're justified. The minute we're justified, because we love God, we begin to work on showing our love for God out of gratitude for Him. And if we truly love God and we trust and have faith in God, then we're going to do what He asks us to do because we trust that that's going to lead not only to our greatest good, but because we want to honor God. And so we honor God by abiding by the covenant terms that he has given to us. We've entered into a covenant with him. And the terms of the covenant for a, a Christian are to mourn with those that mourn, to give to those who need. I mean, you know, they're the kind of things that Mosiah talked about. And so when it comes right down to it, this is a very profound recognition of grace. Now, Paul never uses the term salvation by grace, okay? <laughs> In Ephesians, it says we're saved by grace. But what that simply means is that out of grace, God has accepted us into relationship. Now, there's another thing that happens in the honor-shame relationship, and I think this is important to recognize. If you recognize the king as your king, you covenant fealty to the king, it means that you've promised to recognize the king and pay tribute to him in whatever ways are appropriate. Maybe you pay taxes. Maybe you recognize him and give him gifts. But the king then has a duty as well. The king protects you. It's the king's duty to protect all those in his kingdom. And it's the same with God. God is the king who protects us against all those things that seek our destruction. And we don't do this because we get this from God, but the result is that God promises us that he will protect us from all those things that seek our destruction. 
as long as we maintain covenant faithfulness. And we are actually protected by keeping covenant faithfulness because the natural result of keeping covenant faithfulness are close and abiding relationships and growing into a stronger fellowship relationship with God and with those in our lives. So we get the blessings of loving relationships. And I often like to say the gospel is this simple, and it really is to me this simple. Love is and cannot be anything other than a free choice. One cannot have the benefits of a close and loving relationship without choosing to love. If we don't choose to love and we breach the covenant of love, then we don't get the benefits of being in close and loving relationships. And we just happen to be the kind of beings that flourish in close, loving relationships. We happen to be the kind of beings that are happiest in close, abiding relationships of fellowship. And so the fact is, God gives us love as a matter of unconditional love because he's loving. He's already accepted us. He's now waiting on us to return his love with our free choice to love him back. And we can't have that blessing unless we make that choice and act in a way that is consonant with being loving. We can't say that we're loving when we're not. Either one is loving or one isn't. One can't abuse one's wife and still claim that one is loving toward one's wife. The fact is that our actions have consequences and they damage our relationships. But the whole matter is focusing on the covenant relationship and the benefits that we get. God has covenanted with us. We are saved in the sense that we are delivered from death and hell and all that seeks our destruction because of our faith in him. And that's what it means to be saved by grace. All right. Um, So just a quick overview of some of the things we went over. So one is declared to be righteous or justified by being honored by God and by being accepted as a client in the covenant relationship. And God is thereby honored because the terms of the covenant require the client to proclaim God's honor. And for Paul, honor is glory that is given to another as a gift, as a matter of grace. It connotes a certain virtue and sacred value conferred by a patron on a a servant or a client. And also, like, to be honored by God or to be loved by God, that's not something that we're doing. It's not the one who's being honored or being respected that that has the honor. It's the one who confers them, which is God's honor and God's respect and love. All right, let's talk a little bit about faith, because faith is quite a bit different in Hebrew and Greek. Anyone who knows a second language know there's terms that are understood differently, especially because of the way the culture views them and the way they're used in the language. So let's go over faith and how that would be understood by Paul. So to put it in a kind of a shorthand, faith is faithfulness to the terms of the covenant relationship. In other words, what faith really means is to be faithful. To be faithful means to abide in a relationship by engaging in the kind of conduct that nourishes the relationship and avoid conduct that creates alienation or that injures relationships. So faith is an interpersonal term. In Greek, the term is emuna, and it has basically the same kind of semantic field as the Greek pistis, both of which mean faith. So they are pregnant with this interpersonal meaning of faithfulness, loyalty. The best way to translate them, in my view, is loving trust or loyal trust. So I trust my wife to be faithful to me. I trust her because of her long history of faithfulness, because I can tell that she loves me, because she's covenanted with me. But I have this trust. But trust is a gift that I give, (laughs) okay? I trust her. And if I cease to trust her, it's because of an act I do, not necessarily because she's untrustworthy. 
But the fact is, is that faith is something that, I mean, I'd like to see it as an action verb, the way it's used in the Johannine literature. Faith is, I'd like to say, an action verb, but we don't earn salvation, we don't earn love by being faithful. Faithfulness is the way that loving people relate to each other. If I've covenanted with my wife, I'm faithful to her, and she's faithful to me because we love each other. It's not because I'm controlling and demand her faithfulness, it's a gift that she must give to me. Not only do we give the gift of our faith to God, he gives the gift of faithfulness to his covenant relationship and his gift of return of glory and his gift of salvation. And so it's a two-way gifting. And this is an important part to see. It's a mutual glorification that is occurring. So faith is pregnant with this kind of interpersonal, I'm honoring you, I'm loyal to you, I trust you, and I love you. And so faith isn't this kind of intellectual recognition. Remember, James says that the demons also believe, but that doesn't mean they have faith. (laughs) Faith is demonstrated in one's acts, but the way that one is in relationship in the epistle of James, James is upset at the rich Christians because they are not imparting of their substance and goods to the poorer Christians who are in great need. He therefore says that their faith is dead. In fact, he says that these Christians who think they're Christians are actually self-deceived because they are acting in a way that is contrary to the law of love, all the while pretending to be Christians and actually thinking that they are Christians because they believe that Jesus is actually the Messiah. I'm sorry, but a belief like that isn't saving, it's not faith. That kind of mere belief, intellectual assent, is not at all what faith means. So it's important to recognize it, how pregnant the word faith is, especially as it relates to the way it was used in Paul's own culture. Yeah, because, I mean, in our culture, a lot of times we're thinking, you know, faith, it means to believe in something, where with Paul, it's, it's more of a loyal faithfulness and lifelong commitment. Again, the type that's inherent in the patron client relationship that we've been talking about. And that's the type of faithfulness that's demanded when one enters into the covenant relationship. Even so. Well stated. All right. Was there anything else you wanted to hit on with justification by grace being in Christ? or? No, I want to point out that I think there's a useful way of shorthanding this, and that is to say that one enters into the covenant relationship with Christ through grace as a result of one's faithfulness to the relationship. One remains in Christ and in the covenant relationship by abiding by the terms of the covenant. One cannot remain in the relationship while breaching the terms of the covenant. Remember, the terms now for a Christian are the terms of the law of love, the law of liberty. There are a number of different ways that it was called by the early Christians, but it's very clearly a new law that sums up the entire law of Moses. It doesn't replace it. The law of love was the ultimate destination and goal of the law of Moses. And Paul saw it that way as a schoolmaster that would teach the Israelites how to abide by the law of love. And so what is really happening in terms of this very profound doctrine of justification by grace is our willingness to simply love others and to make our love active in our lives by the way we treat them and by the way that we regard them. So that now we honor all people with our love. And there are no distinctions for us, and we refuse to judge. And this is what a Christian truly is. And so this is a very profound doctrine that gets to the very heart of what a Christian is and who the Christians are. One other last comment, because we'll get into it later. 
for Paul, there is no such thing as individual salvation by grace. He never talks that way about an individual. Every time that Paul is talking this way about being in Christ, he's talking about the Christian people as a whole, just the way that Israel was a group of people. This notion of being predestined to salvation is for all those who were found in Christ are predestined to be recognized and honored by Christ on the day of judgment. But of course, because they meet the terms of the covenant. But it's not an individual judgment. And so one should not commit the category mistake, it's a logical mistake, of saying that what Paul is doing is teaching individual predestination to salvation, because he is not. He has nothing like that in mind. And my view is that the Protestant Reformation, while it had a lot of very good things to say, was a major misstep in understanding Paul and actually moved us further away from what Paul had in mind as far as I'm concerned. Nicely summed up. We have covered it all, and we'll move next time more and talk more about the new perspective of Paul and some other aspects of it. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.